welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I think the episode that we did for your podcast, Technology of Mindfulness, just went live last week, so it's fun to be able to talk to you again so soon. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, I'm really glad to talk to you about mindfulness and technology and and all things related and how it relates to the lives of busy professionals and founders. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of different folks kind of listen to this podcast, but I would say many people who are drawn to our work at Zen Founder are entrepreneurs and a, a solid proportion of whom work in the technology space. And I know that's a space where you've spent yes. most of your professional life. Yeah. Yeah, personal and professional life. I mean, I started programming computers when I was about 10 years old. For those people who are old enough to remember, a TRS-80 was my first <laughs> computer. Black and white, 16K, weighed about 40 pounds, I think. You know, And so as a, as a kid, teenager, I was always programming. I went to MIT, studied computer science there. I actually took an unusual turn, which is I went to law school. Then I became a patent lawyer. And my focus there for the last 20 years has been patent protection for computer technology. So I work with high-tech companies, startups, all the way through multinational corporations. So I've, I've been immersed in the world of computers and the internet and technology personally and professionally, really my whole, my whole life. What's your favorite gadget these days? <laughs> you know, one of the things I've tried to do as I've been working more in technology and mindfulness is not get too attached to individual gadgets, you know, <laughs> see them more as things that are useful. But actually, I, I really have come to like my black and white Kindle because when I want to read, I do like reading paper books still. I go back and forth. I think it depends on what mood I'm in, what, where I happen to be physically. But I like the Kindle. It's simple. It's not distracting. It kind of does one thing. It does the it does, one thing well. It does one thing. If I get drawn to do something else, it doesn't make that easy to do because it can only do one thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually why I don't read a lot of electronic books because I, I haven't purchased a Kindle. So I, I try to read them on my phone, which is practical in the sense that I'm not carrying around lots of things and don't have lots of devices, but I certainly run into that distraction problem. Yeah, so it's huge. I tend huge. to read a lot of paper books still. And I, I was really disappointed when the iPhone and iPad introduced screen and screen feature recently. I say that because I remember when the iPad first came out, I really liked the fact that it was a device that was fast, of course, but only used the full screen for every app and made it hard to switch back and forth and distract yourself. I really liked that about it. And then when Apple introduced more multitasking and screen and screen, and if you're watching a video and switch to another app, the video can keep playing in a minima. It just contributes to the, to the distraction and we don't really need more of it. Uh, so you know, one of the things I do in, in technology for mindfulness, I've recommended to people many times is not to encourage people to buy a million different devices, but think carefully about whether using a single purpose device some of the time it is 
more conducive to you being focused and productive. And, you know, that single purpose device could be a pad of paper and a pen. <laughs> Going old school. I still, I still, I still have mine. <laughs> well, I know that you have, you've lived in the world of technology and you've had this, this parallel life in the, the world of mindfulness. Yes. And I, you know, I think that's a word that people hear a lot, but, but what does that, what does that mean to you? What is mindfulness to you? Yeah, I think the definition that's given most frequently, and it's usually attributed to John Kabat-Zinn, who took traditional mindfulness from the Buddhist tradition and secularized it in the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, is paying attention intentionally to your experience in the present moment without judgment. I mean, there's a lot in there. Some people simplify it to paying attention to your experience in the moment. And you know, for people who aren't familiar with that, they might say, what's the big deal about that? Or why is that important? A lot of people I know who are entrepreneurs might say, I am very attentive to what's happening all day. I'm super focused. But the paying attention to your experience is not necessarily the same as experiencing your experience. Uh, You can go through your whole day being busy and active, but not being aware of what your experience is. Uh, You know, you might be, your, your adrenaline might be pumping all day and driving you, but you might not have an awareness of that fact. We sometimes in mindfulness talk about stepping back somehow internally from your experience and being able to view it a bit as if you're an outsider. That's what's meant by paying attention to your experience rather than merely experiencing it. That makes sense. And one, just to put a practical bent on that, you know, why is that important and how can it be helpful for for entrepreneurs? If anyone listening has had the experience of going through a busy day and at the end of it, sort of wondering a bit what just happened for the last 16 hours, <laughs> or, or if you've ever started out your day and said, you know, there's one thing I want to focus on, or I have one main goal for the day, whether it's a specific task or project or thing you want to accomplish, and, you know, six o'clock or 10 o'clock or midnight rolls around and you say, wait a second, I, I lost sight of that during the day. I never really attended to it. And if you feel like circumstances took over and carried you away and you lost that focus on your intention, you know that may be a, a, a lack of having maintained a state of mindfulness throughout the day where you're really paying attention to what your intention is and how that influences your actions. I hope hope that's a little bit helpful to put it into context in people's practical and professional lives. And and how did this come to be such a deep value for you? Was there a moment when you thought, wow, I really need a change in my life? Or how did you start with the process of mindfulness for yourself? There's been a a few things. Uh, I've studied martial arts, a few different Japanese martial arts since I was very young. Coincidentally, around the same time I started programming computers, 10, 11 years old. I've had the good fortune of having teachers who really incorporated mindfulness into the teaching. That's not always done. There are certainly people who teach martial arts more as a sport or a form of exercise without this uh, mindfulness aspect. Interestingly, in martial arts training, my teachers don't typically use the word mindfulness, but there are other kinds of states of mind that you work on cultivating. And a very simple example would be uh, that you learn to pay attention to your 
all parts of your body in space. Many of us you may be live in our head. You may kind of see the world through your eyes, and that's the focus is that part of your body, and maybe not be aware of what's going on in your knees, you know, or your foot. And martial arts, like many other uh, physical practices, helps cultivate a, a whole body awareness of what's going on in your body, ability to to control many parts of your body that you may not have otherwise. But there's also I'd say an emotional aspect to it, which is that when you practice martial arts, you're simulating being attacked, being in a fight, and you will experience fear. You will experience anger. You may experience all kinds of feelings. And the training that I've had addresses that directly. And, and there are techniques and exercises that help you learn to pay attention to those feelings, not push them away or ignore them, or avoid them, or act as if they're not there. Not necessarily try to change them either, but be aware that you're afraid, and be able to act intentionally in the way you want to, despite the fear. And that's very consistent with uh, how I've also been taught to practice sitting meditation. There's a, there's a lot of overlap between the two. So I feel fortunate to have had that long experience. It's been over 35 years now of studying martial arts. And so I say I feel fortunate because for most of my life using computers, I use them to program. This is throughout the 80s and the 90s. I was also always a writer, loved writing. And I found that sitting down at a computer to write really helped me to stay focused. I mean, I could sit down for hours at a time. This was before computers were connected to the internet. <laughs> this is before they could multitask. And for people who don't even know what that means, it meant you sat down to write. You'd see like a, a typewriter with a screen, Like a typewriter, right? exactly. You couldn't do more than one thing. I mean, my first computer, if I wanted to change from a word processor to something else, I had to take a cartridge out of it <laughs> yes. and insert another one. Uh, so, but then I found that in the 90s, as the, the web came around, I remember the very first Netscape web browser, computers got faster. They started to be connected to the internet more and more computers were distracting me. I was finding it was harder to sit down and write or program and stay focused at a computer. In fact, the opposite was starting to happen. I feel like my personal experience kind of mirrors the cultural experience over the last yeah. 20 years. And I actually was writing a book from around the period of 2000 to 2009. And here's me, someone who's loved computers and used it. For much of that, I did actually use a pen and paper because I found I couldn't sit and stay focused at a computer. And you know, I felt very frustrated at this. And there was a feeling of loss too, that here was a tool that had been so much a part of my life that helped me to do some of the things I loved so much. Creative work, writing, mm -hmm. programming, even thinking and developing thoughts through writing at a computer were in a sense being taken away as computers and the internet turned into more tools for marketing and for sending messages to us. It became more intrusive in your yes. brain rather than yes. a tool that you right. went to intentionally to use to be an expression of something that was inside of you. Exactly. Exactly. It's just like, you know, I grew up in New York City. Uh, it became much more like uh, constantly being in the middle of Times Square, bombarded by advertisements, right? That's that was the ex increasingly the experience. And then, of course, when mobile devices came around and that were connected to us all the time, wherever we went, it got, it got even worse. So I got really motivated because I knew that technology could work in a different way. 
that we could have a different relationship with it because it had been different in the past. I got really motivated to find ways first for myself to get the best of both worlds, you know, keep all of those benefits of high speed computers that could multitask, that could give us access to information and communication, but without all the distraction. To hold a whole library in your hand. Right. It's incredible. You know, and I always talk a bit about my background because you know, no one can accuse me of being a Luddite or mm-hmm. anti-technology. You spent your whole life creating and defending technology. <laughs> you know, and I, I never advocate giving up on technology. And in fact, you know, uh, a part of what motivated me also was at some meditation courses and retreats, I found traditional meditation teachers advocating more of the putting technology away as the answer. And although I think there is some benefit to saying, oh, for an evening or a day or whatever you decide to do, I'm not going to use any technology. I both don't think that's practical or necessarily even the best answer for many people to totally stop using it. What I advocate and work on is finding ways to make use of technology to maximize the benefits and minimize the the disadvantages, including all of the distractions. And I think, you know, many, many people would agree with that. I think increasingly it's almost the the zeitgeist that people are concerned about the implications of technology, both on our own minds, on our own ability to to think and be productive. And certainly, you know, for those of us who are caring for or raising children, there's uh, deep in the consciousness at this point is like, whoa, what's going on? How do we, how do we sort of pull the reins in on this? What do you think makes it so hard to be more regulated in our use of technology? I mean, the the key thing is that, and I don't mean to sound conspiratorial here, but the evidence is overwhelming that the technology companies have designed technology to be maximally attractive to us uh, and distracting to us. I would recommend to anyone, even though this book is about 10 years old now, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, is one of the first that really went into all of the targeted research that companies like Google do to take advantage of knowledge of neuroscience and how our our reptilian brains work (laughs) so that when they design a web page or how search results appear or where links are, it's designed to catch our attention and pull our attention away from where we wanted it to be to where they want it to go, which is typically, yeah, typically to clicking on a link or moving towards some other advert, something else that generates revenue for the company. And I say, I'm not being conspiratorial. I mean, it's not a conspiracy. I think there's there's pretty good science to support that. (laughs) All kinds of behavioral science and neuroscience have been used to direct marketing and advertising. Yeah. So this is, this is I think, the, the biggest reason why the technology has been specifically designed to make it hard for us to stay focused on what our intention is with the technology. I mean, how many times have you sat there and say, I want to just look up something on Wikipedia? And 20 minutes, an hour later, you say, wait a second, what did I just spend that time doing? Look at the dancing cat in the top hat riding a skateboard. This is amazing. Right. Now, of course, there's something in us that we need to take responsibility for. And I think there's a lot that we can do to help develop new habits in ourselves to resist this. But the the technology is being designed to pull us in that direction. That's That's why we need to work on resisting it. But one thing I always like to tell people is 
in working on this with people, I often hear people express really shame, I think, at how they behave with mm-hmm. technology. And feeling shame that they spent two hours, you know, watching cat videos or maybe doing something worse. It might be pornography or, you know, engaging in other behavior that's really unhealthy and feeling bad about themselves. And, you know, I like to let people know, look, look at the forces you're up against. It's really hard for any individual to expect that they can resist technology that's been designed to target the most ancient part of our reactive reflexive brain. Yeah, Uh, I think all of us want to be exceptional and we really want to be the masters of our own destiny and things like that. But the the reality is, is that we are tribal creatures and much of what gets pulled at, especially if we're talking about social media and things like that, is our deep desire for belonging and connection. And it's kind of this this proxy for belonging and connection. It's belonging and connection-ish. It sort of hits yeah. enough of those neurons that it, we get the, the positive rush at least for a bit. But I, I think you're right about that that shame response that goes along with you know, feeling like we're not, we're not doing it right. We're not doing well when really we're up against these giant forces that are, that are preying on our very most human parts. That's right. That's right. And I think you're right. Connection is certainly one of them. And I ask people just to be easy, easy on themselves. And when, and I gave that definition of mindfulness that without judgment is part of the definition. And that's really hard for many of us. You know, I know that some of the teachers who originally brought mindfulness from the East to the West. Uh, I live in Barry, Massachusetts, which is where the Insight Meditation Society is located. And the founders there, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein, many people know of them. They were in the East in the 60s, and they came back having studied traditional mindfulness. And one thing they found, and when they went back and told their teachers this, was that one of the biggest things that arose for Westerners when they were being taught mindfulness was self-judgment, even self-loathing. And the Eastern teachers were really not that familiar with this. (laughs) What is this thing of which you speak? (laughs) And and for them to learn that it was, uh, you know, almost across the board, a feature or something that was so common amongst people in the U.S. to deal with and then become aware of once they started to meditate. That, in fact, the the people who started teaching mindfulness in the West had to really adapt their teachings to pay real attention to and re- and respect this the, the widespread nature of self-loathing or self-hatred or maybe a little bit more mildly self-judgment that's mm-hmm. so common amongst us. And I think it's related to what we were just talking about with respect to how we can often feel after we go down the rabbit hole. You know, the uh, instinctive reaction for many of us is that means I'm a bad person. There's something wrong with me. Yes. So I've wasted, you know, three hours just futzing around online or playing a game. And I kind of, you know, I wake up, I realize, oh my God, three hours have passed. I cannot believe that I wasted this evening. I cannot believe I ignored my children. There are 18 million things that would have been a better use of my time than what I've just done. Yes. And you go down this spiral. And what's the mindful moment there? The mindful moment is to step back from that and notice, oh, what's going on for me now is that I'm judging myself. 
Okay, so the, in, in a sense, the, the instruction or guidance is always the same. It may seem yes, frustrated. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is why it's good to like give these, these real life examples because it, it gets lost in the abstract. Right. When we think about like the day-to-day moments when we need that prompting to say, oh, I notice I'm judging myself right now. That's right. That's right. The instructions always. So when you find yourself being what you think of as not mindful because you're engaged in self-judgment, you now have a new opportunity to notice that you're engaged in self-judgment and to notice that without judgment. (laughs) So if that makes sense. And this may happen if anyone has met it, it's happened to me. You may go through this loop several times where your mind then judges yourself for not judging and then for caring about whether you're, whether you're self-judging. This can go on and on. And every time you notice that you're doing it, it's sometimes it feels like waking up, people call it that. You, yeah. you get in this loop of, oh, I'm so bad. I'm a horrible meditator. I'm not, no good at mindfulness. And then you wake up, oh, wait a second. That's a loop of self-judgment as well. I can pay attention to that and notice it. And, and you know, I know some people who teach mindfulness don't like to then uh, explain or point out what the practical benefit of that is. One reason is, you know, this works its way out in a different way for every person. And even, yeah. you know, for, for every one of us, it may play out differently over time. But I've certainly noticed that by practicing that kind of waking up, paying attention to even the judgment over time, I gradually have found I spend less time in the loop of judgment before I kind of snap out of it. <laughs> well, you're doing some pattern recognition, yes. right? You're, you're learning to notice, you're learning to collect data on what your internal state is, whether that's your physiological internal state or the internal state of your mind. And you notice when that sort of um, cynical piece of you begins to be activated, or you notice when you're clenching your jaw, or you notice... So, And again, it can be sort of physiological or mental in many cases, but when you have the capacity for pattern recognition and you see it going down the pattern, then you can sort of have the openness for a pause. That's correct. That's correct. And so this ability to notice and then you put it very well, have the opportunity for a pause. At that point, you can make a decision or a choice about whether to pause. And so uh, let me just give an example from martial arts training about pausing. Because I know that when, when I mentioned pausing in martial arts training, people who haven't done it think that's a strange thing to learn how to do. That if you're being attacked, you know, someone's punching, the last thing you want to do is pause and stop. That what you really want to do, someone might assume, is learn how to react as quickly as possible and work on increasing your, your reaction time. And there's some truth to that. But as you get more advanced in the training, one thing you'll learn to do is, so I'll just give an example of a specific exercise, which is to, to face off against the partner and have them punch you uh, repeatedly. Throw punches that don't land. You know, go right at your, at your face and stop an inch, half an inch before, before hitting you. And when you start doing this, most people experience whatever their instinctive reaction to that is. And, you know, different people have different reactions. It's often summarized as fight or flight. I've heard 
fight, flight, freeze, faint, or fake even. <laughs> fake being, you know, you act as if you're aggressive in response when you're feeling afraid. Faint would be pass out or, or, or feel dizzy. Freeze is really common. That's my predominant instinctive uh, response. And picture someone throwing a puncher and, and your body just tensing up and locking in place. So flinching, turning yeah. away. These are all instinctive responses. And when someone throws a punch at you for the first time, you find out what your instinctive response is. <laughs> and, and to do it over and over and over and begin to notice, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And the first step is just to not- notice your own response. And do things like pause, breathe into it, and see if you can intentionally relax everything while staying completely focused on that punch while it's coming at you. Look at it, see it coming the whole way in. If you need to consciously take an extra deep breath, that can be sometimes helpful. And you do this hundreds, thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, part, one of the goals is to, to then be able to develop a relaxed and very focused response where you can merely see the attack coming in see it for what it is, and not have an instinctive physical or mental or emotional reaction to it. That does, over time, what you said. It creates the space to make a choice about what you want to do. Now, what many people think of as martial arts training is learning how to do that reaction, which is learn to block the punch. You might learn to move your arm upward, what we call a rising block. Uh, And you can learn that initially before you learn all of this pausing and relaxing. But really to get to a more advanced level, you need to be able to combine all of this together. And an example of a more advanced way of responding to a punch would be to be capable of seeing the punch come at you uh, almost in slow motion. Mm -hmm. Notice what it is. Sometimes actually take some time before you move and then choose. Do I want to move out of the way? Do I want to block it? Do I want to attack back before the punch hits me? And you need to first have that ability to stay calm and completely focused and at least internally pause before you can develop and insert a new and different response, different from your instinctive freezing, for example. Yeah. And I think this is such a radical capacity for, especially for folks who are in high intensity work environments, whether they're running a business, running a team, just trying to, there's such an emphasis, especially in many entrepreneurial communities on speed. Right. And what mindfulness is teaching, and certainly through this example, you're illustrating that the power of that pause, that microscopic ability to slow down actually allows a better response. Right. Or a response that's more intentionally chosen rather than a, an automatic reaction, which, of course, has the potential of, of going in the bad direction. Right. And let me, you know, if I could have tried to appeal to the attraction of efficiency to entrepreneurs, you know, you mentioned speed. Uh, it comes as a surprise to many people that there's a difference between speed and efficiency. Mm-hmm. I'll give a very simple example from my day that I still struggle with. I get a lot of emails, <laughs> right? I can sit and respond quickly with a lot of speed to a hundred of them in a row. Does that mean I just did my work efficiently? No. 
I may not have actually advanced the project I wanted to work on at all. I might have worked with zero efficiency on what I intended to do, but I might have the feeling that I just did a lot and was very productive because I was fast in responding yeah. to these emails. So it's, it's very easy to deceive ourselves by confusing speed with efficiency. And it's the same thing in, in martial arts. You know, you might re react quickly to a punch by blocking it. One of my teachers would say this, that if all you do is instinctively block every time someone throws a punch at you, very much like responding to an email every time it comes into your, your inbox, you might feel like you're in control. Someone throws a punch, you block. Another punch, block. Kick, you block. Block, 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 block. You might feel, I'm in such control, I didn't get hit. When in fact, you know, I remember when he first said this, it really struck me. What you're really being is the puppet of the attacker. <laughs> if the attacker wants you to throw your arm upward, all they have to do is throw a punch at your head. Hmm. They're controlling your every motion. Yeah. And you're thinking that you're in control when really they are. <laughs> yeah. If you want to really be in control, you have to break out of the reflexive reaction to the punch by doing something they don't expect. Mm -hmm. Like maybe moving out of the way. <laughs> yes. <Instead of> blocking. <laughs> when they throw that punch at your head, kicking them in the shin before the punch lands. If, if you're doing an immediate and exactly opposite response to every action of theirs, then you're, you're, you're maybe acting with a lot of speed, but you are, you are basically a puppet. You're and still yeah, automatically responding to the stimulus that's presented to you, which that's is... Right. No different than the rat in the maze. It's no different. And I think it's very, I still, you know, have to work on this mm -hmm. because you can get that feeling of just having engaged in a lot of action. Yes. <laughs> and feeling like that was productive. Well, it feels satisfying. And I think we've, many of us have, in myself included, in some way sort of reshaped our brains for the metric of speed rather than the metric of efficiency. And right. we think, oh, I got through, you know, my 100 emails in 30 minutes. I am a rock star. I am a ruling life today. That's right. But yet with no deep consideration for what's really accomplished, what meaningful yeah. has been achieved. Yeah, to tie it back into mindfulness and intention, you know, if you do even a simple mindfulness practice of in the morning, setting your intention, if you want to think of it as a goal, if you like that word better, what is the one thing I want to focus on doing today? And then if you want to start by using some technology to remind you, maybe some, an alert that comes up every hour that says, Robert, remember, this was your goal today. Mm -hmm. Are you still focused on it? And you can use meditation. You can use other types of habit training techniques to get you refocused on that intention throughout the day because it will slip. You will slip from your uh, circumstances will uh, lead you in a different direction. But this is one way in which technology can actually help address some of the ills of technology. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of using reminders <laughs> of many, in many ways. It has to be a balance. You know, too many reminders at the wrong times in the wrong place can be distracting. You just become practiced at ignoring them. Right, yes. But a reminder to remember what you decided you wanted to do yeah. in a calm moment at the beginning of your day, for example can be really helpful and cut down on the amount of time that passes when you're down that rabbit hole or feel like you're being pulled in other directions. 
before you can return to what your intention was. You know, I think that the concept of mindfulness is both ubiquitous and not well understood, right? There's lots of sort of conversation about it. It's become maybe not as meaningful as, you know, the term is sort of lost meaning and overuse perhaps. But I I love the way that that the work that you're doing is is sort of re-anchoring mindfulness to practical life and to a technological world, which is what we live in. And I think, you know, most of us don't have the the setup where we can go to the monastery and, and meditate for a month on end without without responsibilities. But that doesn't mean that we can't tap into or become more mindful in our in our day to day existence with all of our gadgets and notifications and the noise of our lives. Yeah, it's interesting you said tap into. Uh, we recently launched a course called Tap Into Mindfulness. Oh, I, maybe I subconsciously knew that from looking at your website, but I, did not, I didn't drop that intentionally. So just okay. pick up the ball and run, man, run. It's, it's a online course. It's a series of guided meditations that you do with your smartphone in your hand mm. to both become aware of your internal experience while you're interacting with your smartphone, but also specifically to develop new habits that replace the old ones. And it does draw on both traditional mindfulness meditation and martial arts training. I can give you a quick example yeah. uh, for people listening. Even if you don't see what we're doing, uh, you, you'll be able to follow along. Uh, if you take your smartphone, and let me just say the course, it's just guided meditations. It's, it's not an app. It doesn't require any new software to be installed. You just do the meditations with your phone in order to learn how to interact more mindfully with it. So wake up your phone. And then go and find an icon for whatever the app is that you, that's the bane of your existence because it draws you in so much, Uh, whatever it might be, email, text messaging, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Netflix. And for anyone listening, if you've already tapped on that icon, you've gone a little too far. Just for now, just find it. And the exercise is to Move your finger towards the icon as if you were going to tap on it and then stop just short of touching the screen and pause. And now pay attention to your thoughts. Are you thinking, for example, of what you might see or experience when you tap on this? Are you feeling a fear. I tell you right now, my chest got a little bit tight, (laughs) just about to tap on my email, seeing that badge telling me how many messages are waiting for me. Pay attention to your breath. Has it sped up, slowed down, got shallower? Has it stopped? It's a very common reaction for breath to stop. Now I'm racing through these instructions really rapidly. uh, And I'll say, once you're done paying attention to your experience in this way, pull your finger away and put the phone back to sleep. Uh, But in the course, we spend about 10 or 15 minutes going very slowly through this combination of engaging in an action, pausing, paying attention to your experience, and then pulling away from the phone without acting. So you probably can see how it is analogous, analogous to martial arts training. You're training your body and your mind. Disrupting that automatic process. Yeah. And here's, there's a couple of ways to practice this. One of them I call rep training, which you can think of like doing rep 
punches in the gym. Those 100 punches. Right. So you can do this really slowly and spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour, paused, paying attention to your experience. Or you can pick up your phone, move your finger to the icon, pull it away, put your phone down. Pick up your phone, move your finger to the icon. Do that rapidly, 20, 30, 40, 50 times in order to train the paw, the physical pause specifically into your body. And then just like if you train a sport, you know, you do an exercise with the hope and intention that when you're in an actual game or match, that physical training will kick in. The habit yes. will have formed for when you need it. So this is the course. You can go to the website, technologyformindfulness.com, click on course, or just go to tapintomindfulness.com. Yeah. I love it. I love that it like gives people this really practical skill to sort of take back this part of them that has been taken over. You know, we right. get to now choose, do I want to click on this? We slow down the process and and I think that that conceptualization of training and just rep- repetition and bringing a little bit of pause and thought back into the choices that we're making with our phones, for example, is is just very empowering and also very simple. Yes, it's very simple. That's why I said there's no app. You know, it's just really you and the phone. And you can very easily adapt this. Once you've practiced these for a while, you can adapt it to whatever you're finding is the most difficult part of your interactions with your phone, you know, which is pay attention to where you go down that rabbit hole and see, can can you identify what you were doing right before that started? Were you moving your finger towards something? Were you reading something? What were you doing? And then can you practice doing that and inserting a pause and practice the pausing over and over again for whatever the most problematic interaction is for you? Yeah, which again invites us to notice What's the most problematic right. interaction? Yes. <laughs> it us to pay attention. So. Yeah, and that's why the paying attention is certainly the foundation. You know, I often think of martial arts training as being applied mindfulness. And you could say it, that noticing is absolutely essential. It's the foundation. But that practice like what I just showed you with the smartphone goes beyond noticing. It. it takes that foundation you've built of having the ability to know. Now, many people don't yet have a strong ability to even notice or be aware of what their own experience is. And and engaging in mindfulness meditation can be really helpful. I'll just say this as a man, (laughs) you know, certainly paying attention to or even being aware of what my emotions are has been something that's come fairly late in life. It's not something most men, at least when I was growing up, you know. It wasn't a skill that was finally honed, huh? (laughs) It wasn't. Uh, Put them into words. And certainly in in all mindfulness practice, whether you're a beginner or, or more advanced, sometimes you're having trouble noticing what a thought is or a feeling or a bodily sensation. Sometimes putting a word to it can help. You know, it's also interesting. I think in our culture, many people, and if we're speaking about entrepreneurs, find it much easier to pay attention to what their thoughts are. Yes. Right? Because we're very well-trained intellectually to develop thoughts, think through things logically, Mm -hmm. be aware of what our thoughts are, but are, let's say, less developed at being aware of what our body 
is mm-hmm. feeling or what our emotions or other feelings are that we're, you know, like that uh, bodybuilder who's all bicep, you know, and no leg. <laughs> or unbalanced in those particular skills. Yeah, yeah, I think thoughts are easiest. Body sensations with some cueing is right. next easiest. And then emotions are most tricky. Really Most tricky. And I think, you know, look, I say this with love towards entrepreneurs because I'm one of them. I feel like I can, I can say these things that, you know, there, there can be a feeling that it's counterproductive to even spend any time thinking about what your feelings are. <laughs> yes. And people yeah. who've listened to this podcast at all ever <laughs> know my feelings about that probably. But, you know, the sense in which we're ignoring all of this really important data. Yeah, the only only valuable thing to do with a feeling is to push through it, maybe. Mm. <laughs> Never to listen to it or trust that it might be some wise wisdom from the depths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sent up to our consciousness as a, as a flag. <laughs> That's right. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I am an entrepreneur. In addition to running my own law firm, I run technology for mindfulness. So all of these practical tips, uh, you know, I developed are are things that I've used in my own life. I like people to know that. You know, that's yeah. where all of this started from. And I'm, you know, constantly working on developing them further and getting feedback from people on what works for them. And I always want to let people know, you know, when you try out something like the exercise that we just did, the most important thing is to pay attention to how it feels to you, whether it works for you or not, to discard it if it doesn't work for you. Try a different one. (laughs) Try something else. Adapt it to yourself and be aware as you continue to pay attention to yourself. You know, something that worked for you at one time may not work for you later or you may no longer need that specific technique later. You know, all of that is part of continually being mindful and paying attention to yourself. Well, I am a huge fan of your work and I'm so glad that you're putting this material out into the world. And I think tap into mindfulness sounds like just such a practical, helpful opportunity for people to be more reflective and intentional about their interactions with their phones. So yeah, thank you for taking the time to chat with me and and talk about your experiences. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I like like being on the other side and I'm looking forward (laughs) to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. So people can follow up with you at technologyformindfulness.com. Yeah, technologyformindfulness.com. And of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Use that in moderation, please. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And of course, the course is at Tap Into Mindfulness. Just hover your finger over the icon. (laughs) Double check, pause. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Robert. You're welcome. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.